Uh, a warm welcome if you're here for the first time. I know lots of um, short but extended family are here, um, but I suspect we've got some visitors here uh, for the first time too. I hope you feel very much at home, uh, despite the chaos. Uh, it's worth you know one of the um, habits we're in at Christchurch is, on the whole, to preach through books of the Bible, um, to let God's Word set the agenda. And we're starting uh, a new book today, the book of Revelation, which is easy to find because it's the very last book of the Bible. Uh, it's on page 1028, if you've got one of the church Bibles. And I'm going to read the first eight verses. So, Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 1, page 1028, last book of the Bible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all tribes of the earth will mourn on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. Let me pray. Father in heaven, you are the one who is and was and is to come. You are the one on whom all of our existence depends. And so we pray now that you would speak to us, that reveal more of your will by the power of your Spirit as we come to your word, we pray. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Life can be very humdrum, can't it? And whether you're a Christian or not, it can seem like one day follows the next, more or less as expected. Uh, life can be, can be lived in black and white. Uh, that can be boring if you're not a Christian, but if, if you are a Christian here this morning, it can be unsettling. Uh, perhaps you read of, of, of stories of Christians from other generations, and their life just seems more spectacular. Whereas yours is more or less the same. Wake up in the morning, struggle out of bed, cup of coffee, breakfast, work clothes on, into the office, nine till five, home, tired, dinner, Netflix, collapse, repeat. And then you come to church on a Sunday or or you open your Bible at home and and it seems, well it seems that, that, that from God's point of view there's more going on. It's almost as if your life is being lived in black and white, whereas the Bible's written in colour. Sometimes we we can almost sleepwalk through life. And we begin to become comfortable with a disconnect between how we experience life and what God has said in his word. The book of Revelation is a bit like a bucket of cold water thrown in your face. 
I've got a bowl of water here, some some in the front row, like a kind of visual illustration. Not looking at anyone in particular. The book of Revelation is a real kind of, it's a real wake-up call. It is a strange book, isn't it? If you ever tried to read it before, you'll know it's full of strange imagery. In fact, lots of the kind of weird parts of the Bible that get distorted and used in cults and sects and bizarre Hollywood movies come from the book of Revelation. Various beasts with all sorts of different heads. We've got sort of things, locusts flying with fire coming out of their tails. 666, the number of the beast. All these things come from the book of Revelation. And yet it is a book given to the church. Given to the church, I think, to, to wake us up. And that's what I want to do very briefly this morning. It just wakes up a little bit to reality as God sees it. Reality as God sees it. Revelation is all about seeing clearly. And the first thing God wants us to see is that you live in a clash of kingdoms. You live in a clash of kingdoms. Look down at verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Now, one of the things that's important to know about the book of Revelation is that it is absolutely stuffed full of either quotes or allusions, kind of more subtle references to the Old Testament. It's as if when when John dips his ink, uh, his pen in the ink or his quill in the ink, uh, he's writing with with colours that come directly from the Old Testament. It's almost impossible to count the number of times he references uh, the Old Testament. But right at the beginning of verse 1, we see one of them. In particular, he's referencing the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is almost the, the, the revelation of the Old Testament. Again, a very strange book. Uh, but early on in Daniel chapter 2, a king goes to sleep. It's about 600 BC. A king goes to sleep and he has a, a dream. And he dreams of this, this statue. It's a huge statue. And the top of the statue has a gold head. And below the gold head is, is a body. And the body is, is silver. The legs are bronze. And the feet, well, they're, they're kind of iron. With a bit of clay. And as he watches, as the king sleeps and he watches this statue, a stone rolls down the hill and it smashes into the statue. And the statue is destroyed. But but slowly, the stone that started off with just a a marble grows into a a kind of golf ball and then a cricket ball and a football. And then it's about the size of a car and a house and it grows and grows and grows until it becomes this mighty mountain. Now, the king hasn't got a clue what's going on. He wakes up the next morning and he calls all his wise men. He's not a, a believer. He's not a, 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 an Israelite. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. He's a Babylonian. He calls all his wise men together and asks, well, asks a pretty tricksy question. See, they're expecting him to describe the dream and then they will give him an interpretation. But Nebuchadnezzar's too clever for that. He's seen charlatans. He's seen religious leaders before. He knows that... Uh, He knows they're they're clever types. And so rather than telling the dream, he says, no, you tell me what I dreamt and then tell me what it means. And all the wise men say, oh, you haven't a clue what you dreamt. You can't do that. It's not fair. He says, well, if you're so wise, you tell me. And if you can't, I'll kill you. At which point they start panicking. But there's one man, Daniel, who is a believer in God. He's a Jew who's been captured and taken to Babylonia uh, to serve in the king's court. And Daniel because of his relationship with God, is shown what this dream means. So Daniel comes before the king, and in Daniel 2, 
Uh, he says to King, King, King Nebuchadnezzar this, No wise men or enchanters or magicians or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. None of your guys can interpret it. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known or revealed to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. That the passage is full of language. God has revealed to me what will happen in the latter days. God has revealed to me, says Daniel, what is going to take place. That the language is the language of Revelation 1. And Revelation 1, the revelation, literally the, the apocalypse is the Greek word. You know the, the word apocalypse, it just means something that is revealed, unveiled. And in Revelation 1, 1, John is saying that that, that dream that Daniel interpreted to, to Nebuchadnezzar about what was going to happen in the latter days, well, that, that is the context for what I'm about to reveal to you now. Uh, Daniel goes on to explain that the dream. He says that each, each level of the statue is a different empire. So people fight about quite, quite which empire is which. But gold is basically the Babylonians. So the silver body, and the, the Medes and the Persians. The bronze legs are the Greeks. And then the feet, feet, the feet of the Romans. Uh, and the stone that comes smashing in at, at the foot of, of the, the statue and shatters it and grows and grows until it becomes the, the biggest mountain in, in all the world. Well, that's the kingdom of Jesus, the church, in other words. Now, when Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar 600 or so BC, 600 years or so before Christ, obviously he was still speaking the future. But between Daniel and John, that kingdom has arrived And it has slowly begun to grow, but very slowly. As John writes, probably the last book of the New Testament in terms of when it was written. Uh, they don't date their letters, so it's hard to know exactly. But as John writes, Christ has come, he's died, he's risen again, and the church has begun to grow. In other words, there's been a clash between, or the beginning of the clash between Jesus and his kingdom, the stone, and the Roman Empire. And John's readers... Those listening, as, as Revelation is read out, are those living in the clash between these two kingdoms. They're citizens of the Roman Empire. Okay, they live in around the Mediterranean, particularly here. They live in Asia Minor, Turkey, as we now call it. But as they've become Christians, ultimately they're citizens of Christ. And there is an increasing tension between those two kingdoms. In Daniel's vision, it's not that the stone rolls down the mountain and politely asks the statue to step aside. And the statue says, of course... You're the true king. Why don't we lay down our crowns, crowns before you? No, it is a smash. The stone shatters the empire. And the empire isn't pleased about it. And John is saying, in other words, right at the beginning of his letter, I am writing to you Christians who know what it is to live in a clash of kingdoms, a battle between two kingdoms. And I'm writing this letter to you 
to reveal to you God's plan. Just as Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar his plan two and a half thousand years earlier. And like Daniel's plan, or rather like Daniel revealed, it is a plan about the growth of this kingdom and the battle that will ensue. And so as we go through Revelation, we'll see there's a battle, particularly in two areas. There's a battle for belief. Again, if you're a Christian, you'll know this, you'll feel this. That what the world preaches to you and what God preaches to you are intention. In the early chapters of Revelation, the church is constantly having to fight to guard the truth. And sadly, that's still the case today. It is not true, is it, sadly, that you can walk through the door of any church and just be guaranteed you will hear the truth as God lays it out in his word. Many churches have moved away from the Bible and and wanted to sort of compromise with the earthly empires. If we're going to be popular, we need to be more like the world. We need to think more like them. We need to get rid of some of the more unpopular parts of the Bible in order to make it more palatable. And that's not a 21st century problem. It is a 1st century problem. And that is what John is writing to in part. There's a battle for beliefs as the two kingdoms clash. There's also a battle over behaviour. Again, we think, don't we, that our culture has moved miles away um, from the gospel and Christian living. And to a certain extent, that is true. Okay, clearly, England was a, or the UK has been a, a, a group of nations in which at times in history... The, the, the gospel has been strong. Churches cover every parish in, 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 in the country. There's been a certain level of Christian morality that's kind of hung on. Now the rope between Christian, um, Christian lifestyle and Christian belief was cut many years ago. But the, the lifestyle drifted more slowly. But you know living nowadays that the gap between someone trying to live a Christian lifestyle and someone who's just going the way of the sort of everyday person out there in the world is increasingly large and yet the gap between a Christian nowadays and a Christian in the days of revelation is not so large John was writing to those who were called to live lifestyles that were totally at odds with the world around again the Roman Empire the dominant force of the day and the church were loggerheads So this letter is written to encourage you to stay strong in what you believe and in how you behave as a Christian in the light of the fact that there is another empire and another emperor calling for your attention. And so if we just walk through those first three verses, um, God has done something. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. Here is an unveiling, a revelation, an, an uncovering that God has given to Jesus. God always works through Christ. So when, he, when it talks about a revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not a revelation about Jesus Christ, like a painting of Jesus. There he is in the painting. But rather, a revelation from Jesus. God, through his son Jesus, to show to his servants, that is, everyday Christians like you and me. Revelation is for ordinary Christians, that's good news, isn't it? It is a book for us. It's not a book just for Bible scholars or academics or certainly not a book for kind of uh, those who've got the right codes to uncover it and unlock all the secrets of all the weird beasts and all the rest of it. It is a book for the church. Now, it is hard. One of the bizarre things, I've seen, uh, um, I remember doing Revelation quite a few years back and I listened to a few sermons there. One of the bizarre things I remember thinking or, or noticing is that loads of series on Revelation in, in different churches began 
people think Revelation's really hard, but it's not. But it is, <laughs> isn't it? If you're honest, if you ever tried to read it, it is just harder than Mark's gospel. That's okay. Some bits of the Bible are easier, some are harder. Peter says in, in one of his letters that some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. Now, Peter was dead probably before John wrote Revelation, so goodness knows what he'd said about Revelation. But it is just difficult. That's okay. It's not impossible. It's given to the church. But it will mean at times there are parts where we're a bit less clear. Um, some of you may have heard of, of John Calvin, the great reformer, one of the greatest Christian minds of the last five, six hundred years, in Europe at least. He wrote commentaries on every book of the Bible, um, bar the last couple of letters of John and Revelation. Okay, Calvin ducked. Okay, if Calvin ducked, I don't think there's any shame in us saying, well, at times there are things that are a little bit hard. And yet, and yet, it is still for the servants in order to strengthen us in the clash of kingdoms. And therefore you can expect something as you read and hear this book of Revelation. What you can expect is there in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Of course, in in the, the days when John wrote this, most people couldn't read. You wouldn't have had a Bible at home in the first century. Partly because it hasn't been written yet, it's all been passed around. Partly because lots of people can't read. So the way you heard scripture is by having it read at church. So blessed is the one who reads it, who ministers the scriptures, and those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The time is near. It is a book that leads or should lead to blessing. Because it's a book that's meant to open our eyes. And those of you who've been around a while know that my pop culture references are sometimes not exactly up to date. <laughs> Joe versus the volcano. Anyone seen that? No, look at that. It's an absolute monster hit in 1990. Um, in 1990, amazing film, Joe vs. Volcano. Anyway, uh, there's a line where uh, the, 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 kind of the female star turns and says to the, to, the, to the male character, my father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to, he says that only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. It's not a Christian film. It's such a great take, isn't it? Everybody's asleep. Almost everybody's asleep. Everyone you see, everyone you work with, everyone in the, in the shops, as you go about your business. But just a few people are awake, she says, and they live in constant, total amazement. That constant, total amazement is what revelation, this unveiling, is meant to do for us. So in the remainder of our time this morning, I just want us to, to, to look at uh, two or three things God wants us to see, to, to give us this amazement, to help us see more clearly and not believe that the world is just black and white humdrum, as we tend to think, that there is something far more significant going on. First of all, let me ask, do you see who's at work? Do you see who's at work? Verses four and five. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead. And the ruler of the kings on earth. Who is this letter coming from? Yes, John the disciple. who wrote John's gospel and John's letters. But ultimately, it is from... Well, it's from God. God the Trinity. You see all three persons. There's the Father in verse 4. Him who is and who was and who is to come. 
And to remind us of the burning bush when Moses asks God, what is your name? And God says, I am. God is the one who is, who was, rather, who is and who is to come. He has no beginning and no end. If you look at verse 8, you get a similar idea. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. Again, who is and was and who is to come. God has no beginning. We tend to think, don't we, that, that time just sort of drifts on and God exists in time. But, but God, God was there before time, if I can put it like that. Time only began when God clicked his fingers in Genesis 1 verse 1 and said, let there be light. Before that, there was God. No space, no universe, no matter, no time. God exists in and of himself. He is. He just is. Father, and then the Spirit. Normally it goes Father, Son, Spirit. But here's the Spirit. It's strange, isn't it? Verse 4 again. Uh, from him who is and was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. What earth is going on there? What are the seven spirits before the throne of God? It's a reference, I think, to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Revelation, like I said, is strange at times. But I think this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Partly because we've got the Father to start with. And pretty obviously we've got the Son next, Jesus Christ. So it would make sense for the, the one in the middle to be the, the Holy Spirit. Why sevenfold spirit? We'll just flick over to chapter 4. And verse 5. John is given a vision into heaven. And he sees this throne again. Verse 5 of chapter 4. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. It's getting weirder, isn't it? Seven spirits, which are now seven torches. Why? What's going on? If you know anything about the book of Revelation, you might know that it, it pretty soon is going to move to seven letters written to seven churches. John mentions them in chapter one, indeed, to the churches, uh, he writes. Uh, the seven churches, indeed. Seven is the number of completion. God makes the world in seven days. The creation count is seven. And seven becomes, throughout the Bible, the kind of number of wholeness, completion. And so when we read about this sevenfold spirit, it's not that there are seven sort of distinct spirits, as if suddenly instead of a trinity we've got nine persons in God or whatever. Rather, the idea is that the sevenfold spirit, who, who is a it's picture language of the Holy Spirit, who's equated with these seven torches of fire, is a spirit who lives in all the churches. Each of the seven churches you get a letter are described as having a lampstand, a torch in other words. And so the description of the Holy Spirit as the sevenfold spirit is, is really a description of the Holy Spirit as the spirit who dwells in all the church. Of course, not just seven congregations in Turkey, ultimately in every congregation. Lift your eyes and see, in other words, John is saying, that God is the true eternal one, not your everyday life and work and the studies. God, the Father, is the ultimate source of all reality. Lift your eyes and see the Holy Spirit dwells in you, dwells in your churches, dwells in you. I lift your eyes and see, verse 5, that Jesus Christ is the one who rules the kings on earth. He is the faithful witness. He always told the truth. He never shied away. It cost him his life, but he was the one who spoke the truth. If you want to know the reality of life, the secrets of the universe, you go to him. He's the faithful witness. The firstborn of the dead, he's the one who died and rose again. That's what it means to be the firstborn of the dead, the first to rise again. And he is now ascending on high, ruling the kings of the earth. 
When you look out at your black and white life, says John, don't forget Father, Son and Holy Spirit are there at work. The basis of all reality, indwelling and empowering the church, and in the case of Jesus, ruling over all the nations. And so again, as you go out from here, if you're a Christian, into a world and into an empire that wants to to grab your loyalty more and more, lift your eyes, says John, to see God, remember God, Father, Son, and Spirit. If you forget him, everything will go black and white, and you will most likely compromise with the empire in which you live. Why would you ever stand out from the crowd if Jesus isn't ruling and hasn't conquered the dead? How will you ever stand out from the crowd if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit? Why should you bother standing out from the crowd if God is just a myth, if he isn't the basis of all reality? If what's really real is your career, if what's really real is your bank account, if what's really real are your relationships, if those are the ultimate things, then don't risk compromising them in any sense. I said, John, they're not the ultimate things. Ultimate reality is found in God himself. See? Do you see who's at work? He asks. And do you see what he's done? Just as we close, verses 5 through 7. Do you see what he's done? To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. God has poured his love and grace upon us. That's why the greeting in verse 4 begins. Grace and peace to you from him, from God. Grace talks about God's unconditional gift to us. So John says, do you see who you are? Do you see you're loved? Verse 5, to him who loves us, God loves you. It's so simple and yet so easy to forget. Again, back into humdrum worlds. We're asleep. Like the characters in that film. Wake up, says John. God loves you. That is an astounding thing. We should be walking around in a state of constant, total amazement. And yet either we become accustomed to it or we become bored of it. Or we think, of course he loves us. Why wouldn't that make sense? And so the wonder goes down. But it is an astounding thing. He loves you despite who you are. Look how the verse goes on. He loves you and he's freed us from our sins. He's freed you from your sins. Do you see you're loved? Do you see you're free? What sense are you free from your sin? Well, you're free from the penalty of a sin. Jesus has paid for your sin on the cross. And so there's no condemnation. God can love you. And there's no penalty to fear. No judgment to fear. So in the past, he has freed you from the penalty of your sin. In the present, he is currently freeing you from the power of sin. Slowly, as the Holy Spirit, that sevenfold spirit works in your life. Slowly, sin is, is having less influence in your life. And Christ is having more. Now it's not immediate. Christians still sin. But you now have the power to break free from sin. You're free increasingly from the power of sin. And one day you will be free from the presence of sin. When Christ returns or you die. Sin is no longer your master, in other words, because God has loved you so much. He has broken you free out of that kingdom, that earthly kingdom, and into the kingdom of the Son. 
See how much you're loved? Do you see how free you are? Verse 6, do you see that you're welcome? He's made you into a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. You now have a purpose. You are for someone. You are for God the Father. Jesus has made you a kingdom of priests. Priests have access to God. John, do you remember in the old day, days of the Old Testament, the, the, the tabernacle and then the temple? You could only really go into God's presence if you were a priest. And John says, God, Jesus made everybody who comes to him a priest. That's why we have no priests nowadays other than Jesus. Everybody has open access. God welcomes you to him. He has brought you into his kingdom. And one day he will come. Verse 7. One day Jesus will come again. Now this is where we just begin to dip our our toe in the difficulties of Revelation. Very briefly. I don't want to turn this into a lecture and I need to stop soon anyway. But very briefly there are four ways people have understood Revelation really throughout history. Uh, the first is called the, the historicist way. That is um, those who, who take the book and think it's a map of history. Okay, if you've ever seen a timeline on a sort of school wall of, you know, uh, whatever, first the, the Romans and then the kind of ancient Britons and then the Vikings and then on we go, you know, William the Conqueror and Plantagenets and Tudors and on, on, on we go. Some people read Revelation like that as if it's a chart of history. And so by the time you get to kind of chapter six, that's all, maybe that's Attila the Hun because... Um, uh, there are some sort of strange creatures that, that fire, fire backwards. And pe- some people say, well, that was, that was like the, the, the Attila the Huns gangs who would turn and fire arrows off the back of their horses. It's kind of... the, the problem with that is it, it's just totally random. It's totally random. You know, by chapter eight, we get to Hitler and chapter nine is Stalin. And it, it's all totally well, just subjective. And it would make no sense to anyone at the time. If you're living in Pergamum or Thyatira in Turkey in the first century and you're preaching and you get to chapter 9 and apparently it's all about Hitler, what use is that to you? <laughs> so I think that historicist view is really not very helpful. For others, it's, it's um, a second view called the futurist view. It's all about the future. So really everything after the letters, the seven letters, everything after the letters is all about stuff that's going to happen right at the end. And we can expect it all to be really literal. Okay, so when you read about weird women riding on weird beasts, one day you will see a weird woman riding a very weird beast that comes out of the sea. Again, I don't think that is at all helpful. Revelation is full of imagery. It is not to be taken literalistically in that sense. A historicist, I think, not helpful. Futurist, not helpful. A third view is, is what's called idealism. And that, that says, look, the, as you read through Revelation, you just see patterns. And that is true, you do see patterns. But rather than referring to things throughout history, they refer to kind of isms. Okay? Materialism, the danger of being materialistic. Imperialism, the danger of political power. Now, this one's quite popular. It's sane. It's got lots going for it. And this view says that, that basically you're being, you're being warned against different types or patterns of behaviour. I think that is, that is getting closer to the truth. But I'm still not totally convinced by it because the Bible just doesn't seem to work like that. When we get other writings a bit like Revelation, this apocalyptic writings it's called, so particularly in the book of Daniel that we, we referenced earlier and a couple of other Old Testament books, that, that the visions all refer to something specific. Okay, so that, take that statue, gold, silver, bronze. It, it wasn't a statue of the... Of, 
four different political approaches or something, you know, I don't know, fascism, socialism, communism, and whatever. It was about four specific things. Okay. The, the Babylonians, the Persians, the, the Greeks, and the Romans. When we get these great visions in the Old Testament from the prophets, they're, although they're sometimes expressed as God coming on clouds and the sun going dark or whatever, they're about real things that happen in history, perhaps the fall of a nation. So when Babylon falls as a nation that just happened in history, it's described as the sun going dark and the moon being turned to blood. Now, obviously, the sun didn't actually go out and the moon didn't actually turn to blood, but, but it's image language. And the images refer to specific things. So personally, and I, I'm, I'm most convinced that the book of Revelation... Um, is referring to particular things. Not as this chart throughout history, but, but as the, the great disaster, the great fall in the first century, which was the fall uh, of the, the people of God, uh, the destruction of, of, the, of the temple in AD 70, uh, and the move of the gospel from being based in Israel out to the nations. Now, I haven't got time to try and convince you of that particularly now, and in one sense, it doesn't massively matter. Because all that means is you treat Revelation, this prophecy, as it's described uh, in verse 3, you treat it like any other prophecy. So if we were preaching through Isaiah and we found a passage about the fall of the city of Babylon, we wouldn't spend all our time thinking about something that happened a few thousand years ago to a city in the Middle East. We'd see how the fall of that particular city was a picture of something much greater going on. The fact that one day, or one day Christ will return and all cities will fall before him. And so look with me as we close in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. What is that about? It is possible it's about the second coming, and certainly the book of Revelation ends with the second coming. It is also possible, just because of the language that is used and the way that language is used elsewhere in the Old and New Testament, that that is about the time that Jesus came and shut down the old covenant people once and for all. If you were to read the, the verse literally, behold, he is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes, so there's, it could well be the tribes and the 12 tribes of Israel, of the land will well on account of him. So either it's about the 12 tribes in the land of Israel, or it's about all nations in the whole earth. But the language of the verse allows you to go either way. I suspect it's the former. I suspect it's the 12 tribes in the land. But even that ultimately becomes a picture of the time when Christ will return ultimately to judge. And both, whichever way you go with that, both say, wake up and realise that your earthly life, your black and white life, your life that seems so humdrum, is not reality. It will not last forever. Are you living as if, as if, what really matters is your degree, your career, your finances, your earthly life. Or are you living in the light of the fact that God has loved you and set you free? Can you have your eyes unveiled? Can you go through your own revelation, as it were, and see that Christ will return? And therefore, all your life needs to be lived in light of that. That's what revelation is here to do. To wake us up so that we live in a state of constant, total amazement about what God has done and what God will do in the future. Let me pray and then we'll stand to sing as we close.
Father in heaven, we are sleepy people, we confess. And we're so easily distracted, we get sucked into to the everyday. And we forget the astounding reality of who you are. We think that because we can't see you, that you're somehow not real or not with us. We think because you, Holy Spirit, we cannot always feel within us. We, we forget that you dwell within all your people, within all your churches. Lord Jesus, because we don't see your throne, we, we begin to think that all power is found in, found in Downing Street or Washington. In the Kremlin. Rather than in your hands. So wake us up through this book, we pray. And might we know particularly your love for us. And the way you have conquered all our enemies, all our sin, and set us free. Bless us and awaken us, we pray. In your own name. Amen.